Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. The winds of war have been blowing cold across the felt, shriveling the corpses that lie across hundreds of kilometers in all directions. It's the beginning of July, 1901. Emily Hobhouse was so excited because finally, after weeks of cajoling, she would have an opportunity to put her report on the concentration camps set up by the British in South Africa to a proper debate in London. It had taken a month, but she'd managed to keep her vow to those suffering in the Boer camps where women and children were dying in large numbers. She was going to talk to a full audience at Queen's Hall in London, where she would tell the British people about the suffering of the civilians, both black and white, as Lord Kitchener's camps began to descend into a disease-riddled hell. Winter meant temperatures below freezing. Children were dying of measles and pneumonia at a rate of up to 30 a day per camp, and there were more than two dozen camps. This was starting to look ominous for the British government, and the last thing they needed was a liberal feminist running about with first-person descriptions of the disasters that were these internment camps. The date was set. Hobhouse would appear on June 24, 1901, and 2,500 people were expected. Queen's Hall was the musical centre of the British Empire then, and it had been sold out. John Percival, the Bishop of Hereford, was to chair the evening. Then it all fell apart. The government ordered the owners to cancel the contract and to deny Hobhouse exposure on the rather flimsy grounds of the risk of a public disturbance. Many governments before and since have used the concept of public order to deny gatherings and particularly where the abuses of said governments are likely to be exposed. But Emily Hobhouse immediately looked for an alternative venue and found one at Westminster Chapel. But the inglorious Anglican establishment of the time were horrified and rejected her application as well. The great public event, as Martin Bosenbrook calls it in his fantastic book, The Boer War, failed to materialize. It had been successfully stymied by the empire's significant establishment. Tens of thousands of women and children in South Africa of all races were now doomed to die over the next year, partly due to the government's intransigence, but also due to their own men who believed in death or glory. The honour code is all very well if you're gunning for an enemy on a copy, but these men of war were now aware of the camps and their death rates and had adopted an almost fatalistic suicidal position. We'll all die eventually, but we'll never give up, seems to be their motto. Exiled Transvaal President Paul Kruger had said as much in a telegram to Boer generals in June, saying so many had died already that to give up would be a waste of their lives. Hobhouse had these civilians in her mind as the public events were cancelled, and said so in her many letters at this time. They were brave, they were sick, now they were further isolated from her own people's reasonable analysis. It was a successful censorship, in a way, but only for a few months. She had seen the atrocities being committed at first hand as she crisscrossed South Africa, visiting the camps and drawing up lists of each and their problems. These concentration camps were euphemistically called refugee camps, but most were forced by British soldiers from their farmlands and marched or entrained to the centres. Remember, it was part of the solution. Put all civilians in central points, then scorch the earth, and thereby destroy the support network for the guerrillas. The commandos that still roamed the felt 
predating on isolated British convoys and depots. These drives were starting to work, and Kitchener and his advisers were in a bit of a rush. He was desperate for success, but it had eluded him as the die-hard Boers fought on. Would he be able to continue concentrating women and children in camps, setting fire to vast sways of the countryside, and then clamping down on reporting about these abuses before his whole edifice crumbled in his face? It's a classic moment in military planning. Every commander who is faced with a malevolent civilian force is eventually and inexorably drawn into extreme solutions. Kitchener was not going to make the mistake of allowing Hophouse back to the camps at all and had banned any form of reporting by independent journalists. She had visited Bloemfontein Camp and five more at Novales Point, Aliwell North, Springfontein in the Orange River Colony. She had also seen two in Kimberley and Mafeking in the northwest of the country. But she hadn't been able to spend any time reporting on the Transvaal camps properly. These were growing worse by the day. All were now overcrowded with very little attention to hygiene. Disease was killing more and more every day. Worse, when the women and children died, often they were left where they lay for days on end, with the families living around the bodies of the dead. The military was indifferent. These were the people who were supporting the men who were killing their colleagues around South Africa. So what did they expect? The British Army was growing adept at squeezing these women and children into open cattle trucks on railway lines, and every day these trains were chugging back and forth carrying people like chattel. The ominous repeat of this moment in the late 1930s and during the Second World War by the Nazis, where they ferried Jews, Muslims, Roma people, the disabled, and others to the death camps, does not sit easily on the mind. The only way forward was to get the British public to accept that their government was deploying despicable tactics. After all, Hobhouse said that these were white women and children. These days we would be most shocked by the overt mention of race. But that was in 1901 and she knew that the pictures of people who looked British being flung into camps after having their homesteads burnt down would be a propaganda disaster in the long term. Now Hobhouse was being ignored, reviled even, and back in South Africa, winter's icy fingers closed around these concentration camps. Things were going to get much, much worse before they got better, and censoring the truth was going to backfire, as we'll see in later podcasts. Kitchener, for all his determination and his obfuscation, now faced a far more serious challenge. His drives had been going on for six months, They had shown some success, but for the British government, this was not quick enough. Remember, last week I explained how the Boer War had turned into the most ruinous since the Napoleonic Wars, far more expensive even than the Crimean War mid-century. Alfred Milner, the High Commissioner, was in London, and while he publicly agreed that Hobhouse and her sort must be kept away from publicity, privately he was writing letters to both Kitchener and his own government, warning that by the end of the Southern Hemisphere winter, things had better be sorted out. The war must have ended. He penned a letter to Kitchener, under the guise of moral support, but it was really a pretty blunt warning. More mine stamps at work, he wrote. This war, remember, started largely because of the value of gold mines in Johannesburg, which were still mostly out of action. Some considerable district clear of the enemy, he continued. 
The British still did not control the countryside of South Africa. Some reduction of the force in South Africa. This is where the costs were now alarmingly high. More than a quarter of a million soldiers, both colonial and regular, were stomping about the felt, each being paid, supplied, housed. If these symptoms we are progressing are forthcoming, they will stand a lot more. If not, they will want some of our heads on a charger, possibly yours, more likely mine, and more likely the ministry's. The cost of the war so far had been underestimated, but was ramping up quickly. In the first months after 1899, it was already £23 million. That grew to £90 million between 1899 and 1901. The war, little did everyone know, still had almost another full year to go, and by the end would have cost £201 million. If you factor in interest on borrowing, that was £211 million, or close to £6 billion in today's money. But in June 1901, it was already approaching the £90 million mark. There would have to be an awful lot of gold produced in Johannesburg after this to make up for such a large outlay. As we've seen, the election of 1900 saw the coalition under Conservative leader Lord Salisbury as Prime Minister and his nephew, Arthur Balfour, as leader of the House of Commons, win a clear majority. Various major posts went to the Liberal Unionists, most notably the leader of the House of Lords, the Liberal Unionist Duke of Devonshire, and Joseph Chamberlain, who became Colonial Secretary. It was partly Chamberlain's actions behind the scenes that eventually led to a new policy being formulated around South Africa in 1901. The coalition government decided to send a cable to Lord Kitchener, Commander-in-Chief of British Forces in South Africa, on the 2nd of July. We must now face the possibility that your winter campaign, however successful, will not conclude the war, they wrote. Indeed, the very success in reducing the larger commandos to small, unorganized guerrilla bands may render some change in method necessary by the end of August. This must have come as a small shock to Kitchener who had been carefully manipulating reports back home, indicating he was on the cusp of victory. But the British intelligence system, for all its shortcomings, was better informed. The leadership knew that the commander-in-chief was suffering the effect of being too close to the coalface to have all the facts. The cable continued, The government does not think it's either possible or desirable to continue indefinitely to spend £1,250,000 a week and keep in South Africa 250,000 soldiers to deal with an enemy who cannot be crushed simply because they are too few and too scattered, estimated not to exceed 18,000 men. Boer generals de la Rey and Christian de Bet would have read that cable with a great deal of interest. That was precisely their strategy, which proved it was working to some extent. How do you crush what you can't find? The cabinet wanted a return to civilian rule as soon as possible, and Kitchener was told the new policy would mean his great army would be trimmed by 110,000 to 140,000 and would be shifted onto the payroll of the imperial government. A quick look at the balance sheet and some really interesting facts leap up at anyone looking into this war. For example, what is known as supplies, which would include food, comes in way above all the other costs for the Boer War, at just under £50 million. 
because South Africa was just so far away from all British colonies and the country itself is large, ships and transport make up the second biggest expenditure at £30.5 million. Other stores come next, things like fodder for horses and so on at £17.5 million, followed by horses, mules and oxen at £16.25 million. Railway costs were next at just under £16 million, followed by regular soldiers' pay, which cost the government £14.5 million. I won't go through the entire list. Just pick out the salient numbers, which are also somewhat of a surprise. Ammunition, for example, was way down at £4.3 million. Concentration camp maintenance was only started as a line item in the second year, but cost more than £3.5 million. While the war was costing the British taxpayer millions in South Africa, some were happily pocketing that cash as the war progressed. Because the war was taking place on the southern tip of Africa, maintenance and spares were to be manufactured locally. This stimulated the Cape economy in particular. Up to the end of May 1900, investments by the British had topped a quarter of a million pounds in merchandise, and by January 1901, the army was spending between 40,000 and 208,000 pounds a month in the Cape. The war crushed much of the Transvaal and Orange Free State economy, while at the same time, Natal and the Cape merchants discovered the advantages of a local conflict. There's much debate about how much further developed the South African economy would have been without this war, but there's no doubt that skilled labour was advantaged in sectors of the economy. Take the Army Ordnance Department workshops, for example. Known as the AOD, these were varied in extent and capacity from small field establishments with a few men working with hand tools in a tent to a workshop in Cape Town which had more than 120 artisans busy repairing and building material. By mid-1901, the army realised it had too few riding breeches, and one of these Cape Town AODs saw its staff increased from 8 to 60 tailors, who then churned out 500 pairs of breeches a week. While the mines were offline, many of these artisans were from Johannesburg and highly skilled in their jobs. In a way, the military kept them in South Africa, and once the war ended in 1902, most travelled back to Johannesburg and picked up where they'd left off in 1899. There are many bits of missing data from this war. In previous podcasts, we've heard about the Aborigine trackers and how there are very few records of exactly where they were based and in fact, what happened to these few dozen men after the war, they disappeared. The information is lacking for a number of other reasons. For example, data is not always easy to come by in the middle of South Africa's felt. Weather sometimes plays its part. Take the amazing story in Da'ar, which is a small railway siding in the semi-desert on the main line between the port of Cape Town and the Transvaal cities of Johannesburg and Pretoria. It was a crucial junction where goods were stored that originated in Cape Town and other ports along the east coast, such as Port Elizabeth and the interior. All transactions were logged in large accounting ledgers and kept in a makeshift office built out of corrugated iron and timber. One morning in 1901, while work on these books was in full swing, the bookkeepers toiling away using their indelible pencils, a huge storm that was brewing demolished the building and left the ledges covered in water and mud. When they were recovered, it was found that whole series of pages had become firmly glued together. 
It took days, but they were eventually separated, but had formed what the Times History of the Boer War called an indecipherable smudge. The Times History notes that a new way of maintaining the records had to be found by the Army Ordnance Department. This has been fully appreciated at headquarters, and the next campaign in which the department may be called upon to take part will witness radically simplified methods in keeping store accounts. The next campaign of any significance, of course, was the Great War of 1914-18. So, the cable duly was sent to Lord Kitchener on July 2, 1901. Lord Roberts, the previous commander in South Africa, was against the idea of trimming the numbers of troops, but he could not oppose a government that was alarmed by the expenditure. Kitchener was up against the wall and he did what all military commanders have done at times when they're based in a remote country, busy with a violent conflict and facing political opposition at home. He bought himself time by delaying any formal response to the cable, instead using a series of shorter messages over the next few weeks as he hunted around for other alternatives to the government's preferred policy. As we'll see, his formal response came weeks later, and he managed to delay the major policy change for some months. One of the difficulties the British Army experienced throughout the war was their inability to break the codes being used by the Boers and the Dutch. They had very little inkling of just how fractured the two Boer armies were. The Transvaalers, with their generals Louis Butter and Jan Smuts, who were not convinced that the fight should continue, even though Paul Kruger had recently given his blessing to the continued struggle. The Free Staters were another matter. President Steyn was riding alongside General Christian de Wet and was determined that this war would last as long as it took to beat the British. Back in London, it was not known how extensive this debate had been on the Boers' side. However, the code was about to be broken by the British, and as with the famous Enigma story of the Second World War, knowing more about the enemy's sentiment and plans would mean more effective deployment of men and materiel in the future. Nothing, it seems, is more important than accurate information during a war, and the British were about to find out just how fractured the Boers had become in the struggle for South Africa. I'll return to the code-breaking next week, which allowed the British to focus on what were seen as weak points in the Boer organisation and regions, and it was a major blow for the Boers. So we'll cease fire for this week. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, and if you have any notes or messages, you can contact me on Twitter at Des Latham, or send an email through our website, abwarpodcast.com. Thanks to Samuel, who sent me a wonderful gift in the last week, and to my new listeners in Canada, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. I've been constantly amazed by how many people in literally all four corners of the world are listening to this almost forgotten story from the southern tip of Africa. So until next week. Goodbye. <laughs> Daar onder een diemel is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sarimare. Daar onder een diemel is bij die groen door een boom.